Welcome to episode 11 of History of the Marine Corps. The Marines Go to the Bahamas, Part 2. Last week, the Continental Navy and Continental Marines received their orders. They were to search out and attack, take, or destroy all British naval forces. This was a huge undertaking for the American fleet, and a scenario that Commodore Hopkins didn't think was too likely. Instead of going head-to-head -head with the British Navy, the Marines and Continental Navy would bypass British fleets and make their way to the Bahamas to commandeer the British's weapons, ammunition, and powder supply in Nassau. The governor of the Bahamas received multiple warnings about the possibility of an American fleet invading the Bahamas, but he decided not to heed any of those warnings. This would be a decision he would regret later. This week, we get into the actual Battle of Nassau. This battle would be the first amphibious landing for Marines, and also a very successful first mission. Marines would capture two forts with very little resistance. Commodore Hopkins and Samuel Nicholas would leave the Bahamas with a stash of guns, ammunition, and powder that will greatly benefit the colonies in the Revolutionary War. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. The Continental Navy just landed in the Bahamas with ships full of Marines. As we learned last week, Marines captured two sloops that belonged to New Providence upon their arrival. The pilots of these vessels were quick to talk and informed Commodore Hopkins that the island was essentially defenseless. Now, after last week's episode, I received a few emails about the term pilot. This caused a little bit of confusion, and for the sake of clarification, the use of the term pilot during these episodes does not mean the pilot of an aircraft, but a maritime pilot. A maritime pilot is in charge of maneuvering ships that are arriving and departing a port. They differ from captains in that they are extremely skilled in navigating through risky situations. This is a skill that many captains might not have. Now back to the story. The lack of defenses was great news for the marines and sailors who just landed. The goal of this raid was to seize as much gunpowder and munitions as possible and the lack of defenses would certainly help with that mission. The British understood the potential of Americans raiding the island. The governor of the Bahamas received multiple intelligence reports saying so, but after promising that he would convene a council to decide on the appropriate action, he did nothing. Now it was too late. The Marines and the American fleet were 50 miles north of Nassau, preparing for an attack. The seamen on board the American fleet began loading their guns and cannons and checking the rigging. The Marines were given muskets, ammunition, and broadswords. After they received their Revolutionary War combat load, the Marines were transferred to the Providence and the two coastal sloops that were captured the day prior. Commodore Hopkins planned for a frontal attack, and that night, the Marines advanced on New Providence. Hopkins ordered that the fleet stay just beyond sight of the island while the Marines would take their three ships to the harbor at dawn. The plan was for the Marines to stay hidden, below deck until they got close to the fort. Once in position, the Marines would land and instantly take possession before the island could be alarmed. Although not in the best shape, 
New Providence had two forts. Johann David Schopf, the same German botanist, zoologist, and physician who described the town of Nassau in the last episode, also briefly described New Providence's forts. Johann stated that the harbor of Providence is formed and protected by a small island called Hog Island, lying to the north. Because of the island's position, there are two ways to get to the harbor, one to the east and the other to the west. The residents of the Bahamas understood the risk of multiple avenues to the island, and they built two forts, one in the east, the other in the west, to provide protection for the island. The western approach was Fort Nassau, and for those of you reading ahead, you might be familiar with this fort. Fort Nassau was a square stone fort surrounded by walls. It had two bastions, which allowed the men who occupied the fort to deploy defensive fire in several directions. The fort was in relatively bad shape. It was constructed in the late 17th century, but was completely destroyed in 1703 when the Spanish and French Allied forces briefly occupied Nassau. The fort was rebuilt in 1744 by a German military engineer, Peter Henry Bruce. However, the fort was mostly ignored and maintenance was not kept up. Fort Nassau had 46 12 and 18 pound cannons mounted. However, by May 1775, the governor of the Bahamas predicted that the fort would not be able to protect against an attack since there was a good chance the walls would crumble upon firing the cannons. The fort was also in an undesirable position. It was right on the water and was surrounded by hills. Anyone attacking the fort would have the high ground. The eastern entrance had Fort Montague. The fort was smaller than Nassau and built as a temporary fortification. It was square as well and had 17 12 and 18 pound cannons mounted for its defenses. Bruce also built this fort in the 1740s with the purpose of eliminating the alternate route for the island which has been an avenue for surprise attacks in the past. On Sunday, March 3, 1776, as dawn broke, Commodore Hopkins positioned his fleet about 10 miles north of Fort Nassau. Hopkins made a careless mistake, and instead of sticking to his original plan of sending the Providence and the two sloops for a surprise attack, he moved his entire fleet closer to the island. Unfortunately for Hopkins, the American fleet was spotted by a maritime pilot, who quickly notified the governor. Governor Brown rushed to his window and spotted the Continental Navy sailing towards the harbor. Brown ordered the Provincial Council to assemble at Fort Nassau so they could decide how to handle the approaching threat. About 15 minutes after Brown gave his order, the council assembled. Brown ordered an alarm by firing three guns. This signal would notify the island they were under attack and simultaneously notify the island militiamen that they should assemble and prepare for a fight. True to Brown's previous assessment of Fort Nassau, two of the three gun carriages fell apart due to the cannon blast. After the fort's cannons were fired, the island's militia was called into service. Apparently, many of the island militiamen didn't get the memo because less than 30 reported for duty and most of these men didn't have a weapon. Meanwhile, back at the American fleet, Hopkins heard the warning shots of the three cannons and immediately knew he lost the element of surprise. There were strong winds pushing the Americans towards the island faster than planned. 
There were pros and cons from these prevailing winds. On one hand, ships from the Bahamas couldn't sail towards the American fleet due to the danger of navigating the coastal terrain in strong winds. On the other hand, Commodore Hopkins didn't want the fleet to arrive too quickly. The strong winds, coupled with the cannons, would cause significant damage to the fleet. He sailed his ships east and anchored in Hanover Sound, about six miles away from Fort Nassau. With his original plan ruined, Hopkins needed a plan B. He originally suggested that the entire fleet make its way around the west side of the island, deploy marines, and attack the town from the rear. After a brief debate, this plan lacked support from marine and navy officers. The west side of the island didn't have a good place for the ships to anchor. There wasn't a road to Nassau from the west, and the amount of time and preparation needed to turn the fleet around and deploy the marines would provide plenty of time for the locals to prepare for the attack. Instead, the fleet moved six miles from Hanover Sound. They even received assistance from the pilots of the two sloops previously captured. The pilots positioned themselves in the top mass and directed the fleet to the harbor. Commodore Hopkins decided to deploy the Marines on the eastern shore and try to capture the smaller of the two forts first, Fort Montague. Captain Nicholas had his first combat mission. He was to take his 234 Marines and 50 sailors and conduct the first amphibious landing by Continental Marines. A little past noon, Marines and sailors finally made it to shore. They landed at a place called the Creek, which was two miles east of Fort Montague. It took about two hours for all 234 Marines and 50 sailors to land, get into formation, and prepare to march to the fort. The original 30 island militiamen who responded to the initial muster were manning Fort Montague, and at around 10 o'clock, another detachment of about 30 men soon arrived to help defend the fort. A militia lieutenant saw Marines approaching in whaling boats during the initial landing party. Fifteen island militiamen were sent as a scouting party in order to collect intelligence about the invading Marines, and if possible, prevent their landing. This must have been a confusing moment for those militiamen. Fifteen men with insufficient weapons and minimal training preventing 284 Marines and sailors from advancing seemed highly unlikely. The island militiamen realized that they were not prepared to confront the landing party when they saw the size of the marines and sailors getting into formation on the beach. They didn't want to go back empty-handed, and decided to collect as much information as possible before heading back to the fort. Before they left, they sent one man waving a truce flag to the marines and sailors. He was sent with two questions. Who were they, and why were they there? When that man returned, he had a simple and straightforward answer. They were sent by the Congress of the United Colonies in order to possess themselves of the powder and stores belonging to His Majesty. The 15 scouts were ordered to immediately return to Fort Montague. About 80 militiamen at Fort Nassau were ordered to march towards Fort Montague and help defend it. A detachment of another 40 men were sent to meet the Marines at the beachhead. However, while they were on their way to meet the Marines, they ran into the first group of island militiamen retreating and returning to Fort Nassau. The remaining militiamen who were left at Fort Montague were panicking at the sight of close to 300 Marines and sailors advancing on the fort. 
The island militiamen fired a few shots and immediately abandoned Fort Montague. The retreating militia was headed towards Fort Nassau. Before they left Fort Montague, Governor Brown gave the order to spike the cannons. Spiking the cannon involved hammering a large steel spike into the touch hole of the cannon, which disabled the cannons from firing. When Samuel Nicholas approached Fort Montague, he stopped the Marine formation and started to plan the best approach to take Fort Montague. While Nicholas was deciding his best approach, Commodore Hopkins delivered a letter to Nassau stating that the reason for the invasion was only to acquire weapons, ammunition, and gunpowder belonging to the British government. He promised that if the locals did not resist, he would not burn the town and loot their property. Captain Nicholas and his Marines advanced on the fort, but what he didn't know was that the fort had already been abandoned. Captain Nicholas sent Marine Lieutenant John Trevitt to the fort, under a flag of truce. Trevitt met with an enemy lieutenant and brought him back to speak with Nicholas. During their meeting, Nicholas learned that the militiamen occupying the fort retreated and the fort was now abandoned. However, before leaving the island, militiamen spiked all but three cannons. It was an easy win. The Marines moved in and took Fort Montague. With luck on their side, Captain Nicholas decided that his Marines and sailors would spend the night at Fort Montague, and it would be a good idea to make sure they are refreshed before advancing on Fort Nassau. Although a night of rest would be welcomed by the Marines, this gave the governor time to think. Governor Brown decided to take advantage of the hills surrounding the fort, and he responded by sending a group of men to the hills. Despite constant mistakes and bad decisions from the governor, this was a pretty good move. Captain Nicholas was planning to take the hills in the morning, but now they faced danger. There was a significant disadvantage with the enemy now looking down at the Marines occupying the fort. Governor Brown had a dominant position, however Americans still controlled the fort. Captain Nicholas sent word to Commodore Hopkins about their success. Hopkins was very happy with the good news. He was a man of his word and kept his promise of sparing the town since the Marines saw very little resistance by the local population. While the Continental Marines and sailors were resting in Fort Montague, Governor Brown ordered the majority of gunpowder on the island to be shipped out of the Bahamas. Around midnight, 162 barrels of gunpowder were sent on two ships to the governor of East Florida, 119 barrels on board the packet, and 43 on the St. John. Historian Charles Smith, an author of Marines in the Revolution, a history of the Continental Marines in the American Revolution, stated that the escape of the gunpowder can be directly attributed to Commodore Hopkins' failure to close the main entrance to Nassau Harbor. For some reason, Commodore Hopkins had the main ship stay in Hanover Sound during the night and had the smaller vessels near Fort Montague. This allowed the British ships to escape the island without resistance from the Continental Fleet. Locals showed very little resistance to the advancing Marines, and the British were quickly losing confidence in their ability to protect the island. They suggested that Governor Brown evacuate Fort Nassau and give it to the Marines. Governor Brown took the heroic route and stated, as long as a man would stand by him, he would never willingly leave the fort. This did very little to motivate his men, and by morning, almost everyone evacuated the fort. 
The following morning, Marines marched the mile to Fort Nassau. Once they arrived, they found the fort abandoned. The governor was at his home, and most members from the provincial council were at home as well, or hiding behind rocks. Once they arrived, they were met with yet another local waving a truce flag. Captain Nicholas was asked the same questions. Who were they, and why were they there? He gave the same spiel he gave the others who asked these questions. Only this time, the messenger stated that Fort Nassau was ready for his reception and that he might march his force in as soon as he pleased. About an hour later, Nicholas marched his marines and sailors down Nassau's main street. They headed towards the governor's house and demanded the keys to the fort. The governor did not put up resistance and handed over the keys to Captain Nicholas. The marines were able to take over the fort without firing a single shot. Another victory for the Marines. The Marines lowered the British colors and the grand flag of the United Colonies was raised. If you are not familiar with what this flag looks like, I have a picture of the flag up on historyofthemarinecorps.com under this episode. Captain Nicholas sent another report to Commodore Hopkins informing him that Fort Nassau was taken and that it was safe for him to bring the fleet into the harbor. Although a lot of powder was transported off the island, the American forces were still able to collect a large supply of weapons and ammunition. They loaded 88 cannons, around 10,000 cannonballs, and 23 barrels of gunpowder. There was so much gear that they had to seize a local ship to transport the supplies back to the colonies. Commodore Hopkins instructed Charles Walker, a local captain of the ship Endeavor, to join the fleet and bring the supplies back to the colonies. Keeping his word, Commodore Hopkins later came back to the islands, returned the ship, and paid the owner for the ship's use. It took the crew two weeks to load all of the supplies onto their ships. However, the two-week loading time did not entirely have to do with the number of weapons and ammunition. Marines and sailors, being Marines and sailors, confiscated barrels of rum and wine from the governor's home and proceeded to get drunk for several days. Marines and sailors also captured the governor and two men as prisoners of war and brought them back to the colonies. The two men were Brown's personal secretary, Lieutenant James Babbage, and Thomas Irving, a counselor, rent collector, and former inspector general of the King's Customs. After the Marines took Nassau, Captain Nicholas met with the governor. Nicholas was not happy about Governor Brown shipping the 162 barrels out of Nassau and their meeting was not friendly. Nicholas ordered that the governor be removed from the governor's house and kept for four days in a location without food, water, bed, table, or chair. While Marines were loading up and celebrating their victory at Nassau, the St. John and the packet arrived in St. Augustine with the 162 barrels of gunpowder. On March 7th, they met with Governor Tonin and briefed him on what just happened at Nassau. The next morning, the governor sent a letter to a commander of a squadron located in Georgia on the Savannah River. The governor informed the commander of what just happened and suggested that immediate steps be taken to intercept and destroy the American fleet. The HMS Scarborough received the governor's letter and on March 14th assembled the Council of War to discuss actions. After much debate, the council recommended that they do nothing. They decided that it wouldn't be a good idea to leave British supplies unguarded, 
and most likely the American forces already left the Bahamas. Back in the Bahamas, on March 16th, the ships were loaded and ready to depart Nassau. The Marines were all on board and were prepared to go home. On board the Alfred was Governor Brown. He wished to say goodbye to his family before he headed back to the colonies with the Continental Fleet, but Commodore Hopkins did not let him off the ship. However, there are some reports that state he allowed someone to board the ship the next day. On March 17th, eight ships, the seven American vessels and the borrowed ship, the Endeavor, left the Bahamas and sailed for Providence, Rhode Island. The Marines' first amphibious landing was a success. They were able to take the two forts, commandeer the powder and weapons, and accomplish this with minimal loss. They also proved that Marines were successful at amphibious warfare. This success would prove the value of Marines. Next week, we'll start to see some naval warfare, which will provide Marines an opportunity to prove themselves at sea. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we explore some naval battles and take a look at how Marines handle themselves when fighting at sea. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.